folks. This is screen watching. We've got a big show ahead. We've got all the reviews you're looking for. Do you want to know if the new Netflix show, The Chair, is any good? You'll find out on this very podcast. There's a new show on stand called Heels. Any good? Let's find out again. Nine Perfect Strangers. Huge amount of buzz. I think you've already heard what people think about this one, but I'm going to offer my two cents. We've got some cinema as well. We're in a country with next to no cinema, at least no cinemas open, and yet we keep on persevering for the limited number of people that can get along to the theatres. We're going to talk about the brand new movies, The Night House and Reminiscence. Folks, you think that's enough podcast, and yet, bam, we're coming through here. We've got an interview. We've got director, Jacob Chase. He's got a film called Come Play. This is going to be a huge podcast. Strap yourself in. It begins now. Not like TV only better. Television, teacher, mother, secret lover. What? That's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Folks, this is screen watching. My name's Dan Barrett. I'm joined by a man who was watching me as I was making up that intro on the spot, and I could see him watching the cogs turning. <laughs> His name's Simon Foster. <laughs> there was a couple of moments where you veered dangerously close to Breakfast FM there. I was I was ready for you to offer icy cold cans of Coke. I really was. Oh, look, I'll be driving the Barrett Thunder around the streets of my five kilometer radius all morning. <laughs> yeah, see me in my front yard for icy cold cans of Coke, yeah. All right, yes, we have got a nutty screen watching today. You're absolutely right. There's not that many cinemas open around Australia, none in New South Wales, scant few in Queensland and Victoria and other states are starting to feel the pinch of a, the Delta variant as well, but... They're still putting them out there. I've got a couple of big new movies that maybe shouldn't have gone to cinema, but we'll get to that later. And you've got a whole bunch of small screen stuff, which looks very exciting. Yeah, indeed. Hey, let's go right into reviews, because I want to come back and talk about the state of theatre in a little bit. All right, yep. Um, you know how, in the middle of this podcast, people who've listened to it before, and if you're new to the podcast, hello, welcome, thanks for joining us. But people who listen to this know that in the middle of the podcast, we do this thing called the middle bit. Usually it's a conversation that myself and Simon have been having away from the uh, microphones, mm -hmm. and we want to bring it to the podcast. But right now, I'm just going to surprise Simon. I'm going to say, hey, I just created a brand new middle bit segment right here <laughs> and now. Good. But we'll get to that in a moment. We're going to do some reviews first. Simon, let's kick things off. It stinks. Now, Simon, I'm going to be frank at the very beginning of this. I've got three reviews this week, and the three things I'm going to talk about, I'm not exactly excited by any of them, Ooh. but I'm going to explain why with all three. All right, you... And I, I want to establish a bias up front. Mm. I've come to all three of these. I've been a bit disappointed by each of them, and I think I'll put forward a good case for each. But I've also, this week and the last month and a half, been going through all of the Sopranos. So I've been watching it from day dot through to the last episode, which I finished last night. I've seen it before, but most of these episodes I hadn't rewatched since they had originally aired. So it was kind of a period of discovery. So I'm like, what happens to this character? And it's like, oh, that's what happens yeah, to that character. Yeah, I know. Like, You're also watching anything new through the prism of one of the best television shows ever made. So that's exactly where I'm getting I at. I see what you're doing here. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I just want to establish my bias up front here. Take all of this with a grain of salt. Okay. And with that said, the first thing I'm going to talk about is the new Netflix, I will call it a dramedy. It's called The Chair. There she is. Our first lady chair. Woman, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. We're in dire crisis. I wouldn't be surprised if the president asked for Bill's resignation. Can he stay for dinner? No. No wonder nobody wanted to marry you. Are you too involved? My defending Professor Dobson has nothing to do with my feelings for him, which are entirely platonic and professional. Everybody knows she's in love with him. Makeup. What? No. It's pretty. Don't you ever think about it? Who doesn't love Amanda Peet? I'm obsessed with her. She was an immediate star when she appeared on my screen in the mostly forgettable The Whole Nine Yards in the late 90s, but I've adored her in shows like Jack and Jill, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Bent, and an absolute career highlight with her turn in HBO series Togetherness by the Duplass Brothers. She had a solid film career as well, but here she's not in front of the camera. She's the creator and co-writer of Netflix series The Chair. Pete has stacked the show with a veritable who's who of people who are a joy to see on screen. Sandra O stars and is the new head of the university English department with a staff of underperforming tenured professors, including Bob Balaban and Holland Taylor. There's also the popular but eccentric and lazy lecturer, played by Jay Duplass, and you've got David Morse in the show as well as the dean of the university. 
The show is in part relationship dramedy, in part rom-com, and in part satire of the relationship that universities are having with a newly woke school of politically charged students. In the first episode, the Duplass character does something during a lecture that gets filmed leading to student protests, and that's where the series kicks off. Now, all of this is a recipe for exactly the sort of show I'd be very high on, but the show feels slightly undercooked. The jokes don't really quite work, the dialogue and characters don't quite land, and everything just feels performative rather than feeling lived in. Having a cast of some of the greatest character actors that US TV and film has does a lot to hide this, but the show just feels empty. Considering the setting, I was mostly left wishing that I'd instead watch the film Wonder Boys. It's almost like the show knew that's what I wanted, when the show actually steals a moment from that film by having the two leads escaping an academia party to sneak into a lavish greenhouse for a quiet quasi-romantic moment. It's too similar not to be seen as an homage, which as we all know is French for ripoff. The show is perfectly watchable, but it's yet another Netflix series where it feels that the show would have been improved with some network notes and a better development process. Everything here feels like a waste. It also feels like corporate negligence to hire Amanda Peet to create a show that she isn't starring in herself. Okay, so you mentioned two things there that immediately piqued my interest. A, Amanda Peet. I am so on board mm. just as you are with um, all her star qualities. Uh, I'm just stunned that she never went on to Julia Roberts-sized stardom at the movies. I think she's she's totally wonderful in front of the camera and you mentioned Wonder Boys which is one of my favorite movies so everything that you bring about this has me interested except the uh, the the shadow the cloud that you cast with your review that's a shame and I and I am starting to sense that Netflix due to the huge upswing in in uh, subscribers that they've taken on board are rushing through projects to get them on screen and that kind of feels based on your review what this might be Look, I think Netflix has had a problem from day dot where there's a number of shows that come through that unless you've got an incredibly strong auteur behind it can come through as being slightly undercooked and there isn't really a lot of development that happens between network and the show itself. Really, there's a lot more leeway given to creators to create the show that they want to make and honestly, I think that most shows do benefit from a little bit of give and take and some boundaries that people have to work to and against. Like, I think that's where great art really sort of comes from. This feels like one of these shows that never really quite had the... It's it certainly got a vision that it's working towards, but like it just kind of feels like there was never any pushback on any elements of the show, and there's something missing from the development of it. The question I have, and this is maybe a bit sort of too inside, is I wonder why is Amanda Peet creating a TV show for Netflix that she's not starring in? I mentioned this at the end, and the only reason I can think that this show actually really exists is that she's married to one of the Game of Thrones creators... Netflix brought those guys over to Netflix with a large amount of money to create a new series, which is launching um, not too far away. I think it might be next year sometime. We'll see that one come through. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it seems to me like this is kind of a, hey, look, and bear in mind that D.B. Weiss and uh, David Benioff, the two of them are also executive producers on this show as well. It kind of seems like this falls under their development deal. And maybe it was just kind of like more of a vanity project for the sort of very talented wife. Like, I think Amanda Pete. As a co-creator of this, uh, sorry, as a creator of this and co-writer, she suddenly has got some skills and I'm, I've heard her before in interviews. She's got the creativity and she's got the intensive spirit and like the spirit of intent rather. Like it's all there. It just kind of feels like the show just needed a little bit more massaging and I don't think it was given the due attention that it probably really deserved. It's called The Chair. It is on Netflix as we speak, starring the wonderful Sandra. Oh, she deservedly needs um, a big, a sort of a big vehicle as well for her talents as well. I was able to somehow see Reminiscence, the new film starring Hugh Jackman. When the waters began to rise and war broke out, nostalgia became a way of life. There wasn't a lot to look forward to. So people began looking back. Nothing is more addictive than the past. No, 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 put me back. Put me back. The Jack Man plays Nick Bannister, a hardened, grizzled gumshoe type in a future where South Miami has fallen to rising ocean levels. Bannister and his offsider Watts, played by Tandy Newton, uh, run a service by which clients can wire themselves up to some tinny-looking tech, lay in some tepid water, and re-experience their past through memory projections. Into the office one backlit day walks a dame in a red dress, torchlight songstress May, played by Rebecca Ferguson, oozing va 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 and spinning some yarn about 
losing her keys and needing to reminisce to find them. While under Nick's control, secrets are revealed that lead to a steamy love affair, visions of a dark past and danger as only the old film noirs of the 40s could offer. Which means reminiscence has some hurdles to climb from the outset, given that this super stylized art deco water world of a setting is all future tense. Director Lisa Joy, the creative force behind the brilliant Westworld TV series, should be in her ballpark with this exercise in retro sci-fi and detailed world building. But reminiscence groans and clunks in fits and starts, occasionally engaging interest with some neat visuals or sassy dialogue, only to fumble and stutter with dull exposition dumps or terrible slabs of voiceover. Jackman ups the emoting when called upon, but bogey in the Maltese Falcon or the Big Sleep, the kind of films that are clearly the inspiration here, never would have fallen into the traps that Nick doesn't see coming. It's a disengaged performance by Jackman, his heart never really in it, and Ferguson reteaming with a greatest showman co-star is similarly left in the lurch as may bringing the wow factor but underwhelming as the femme fatale it's all derivative to a fault a lot of blade runner a bit of chinatown some inception cliff curtis chewing some scenery as a crooked cop offers some spark but there's nothing about reminiscence that will live long in the memory gosh that is a pan despite everything you've said there Despite the fact that Lisa Joy's behind her and you referred to, I can't remember exactly how you referred to Westworld, but it was positive. Mm. I have to say, I struggle with that show big time. A lot of the problems that you cited as having with this movie, I tend to find through Westworld myself. Uh, so despite that, there's so much about this that I want to check out. Like it ticks so many genre boxes yeah. for me. Yeah. I'm super enthused. And also Rebecca Ferguson. Oh, I know. Look, I'm a fan. And and there's, and, and Tandy Newton is wonderful as the support. She brings a lot of... Um, character to scenes that that uh, aren't there on the page, but um, Westworld star Tandy Newton. Yeah, exactly. And and look, I I want Lisa Joy to have huge success because the what she's capable of creating, and I'm a big Westworld fan, uh, gets me very excited. But with this one. She's, I think there might be a bit of a Netflix factor here. I think she might have been given too much free reign to create what she wants. Warner Brothers wanted to bring the Westworld success to their new Hugh Jackman film, and it was just never there on the paper. So um, it's disappointing. Okay, so we're really sort of uh, batting quite poorly here this morning. <laughs> we really are. Simon. <laughs> Stick with us, folks. Let's spin the review wheel. Do we want to talk about Heels now, or do we want to talk about Nine Perfect Strangers? Let's go to Heels first. Let's play the clip. You need to learn how to separate you, the character, from you, the person. They all cheer for me? They cheer for the character. The character I play! The character I created. Make it right, Jack. He's your brother. I'm aware. Simon, I've never been big into wrestling, but I've got some friends who are mad for it. For one of my friend's birthdays a few years back, we surprised him with an evening out at some underground at an underground wrestling event that was held in a fairly small warehouse in an inner-city industrial area. None oh, of what could go wrong. <laughs> well, this is it. Um, and none of us, we hadn't really been to an, ex- an event like that, but it was eye-opening, especially for me. As I said, I don't really watch a lot of this. The wrestling event was amateur, had passionate wrestling enthusiasts performing on stage with wild abandon. It was funny, crude, and wildly bombastic. The level of enthusiasm in the room was incredible. Which brings me to my experience watching the new wrestling drama, Heels. The show stars the physically impressive former star of the TV series Arrow, Stephen Amell. And if you want to understand how impressive he is physically, get on YouTube and look up his appearance on an episode of American Ninja Warrior. Those physical acts that you saw him do in Arrow, the dude can absolutely do them in real life. Now he stars in Heels as Jack Spade, the owner of the barely sustainable wrestling league. He also performs on stage as a villain, a heel if you were. His co-star is Alexander Ludwig, who you may remember from the Hunger Games movies, and he plays Jack's younger brother who performs on stage as a hero and has let the adoration of the crowd get to his head. And there you've got the tension between the two brothers. Writing the show is former Rick and Morty writer Michael Waldron. You may have noticed him serving as head writer on the recent Loki series. And considering the loud brashness and hilarity of wrestling, this all sounds like a recipe for a really fun wrestling drama. But that's not on screen. And that's a real shame because all the components of the show should work. Stephen Amell is very charismatic on screen, as is Alison Luff, who plays his on-screen wife. And the show gets a lot of things right about the world of the show. It's set in America's Midwest, where my understanding is, is that's where wrestling's heartland lies. And the background of traditional values surrounding church attendance and the like is built into the show as well. The world of the show seems incredibly well thought through. There's just nothing lively about it. The wrestling scenes, they're all very active and very engaging. Well, kind of engaging. But they lack vitality and they lack creativity. You compare the wrestling to this to the theatrical... 
compare the wrestlingness to the th theatricality that we saw, and that's a struggle to get that word out, uh, the theatricality that we saw in recent Netflix shows like Glow, and Hills comes off looking really, really flat. Compare the wrestling that I saw in this to watching it in real life, and boy does it feel flat. The opening credits are amongst the most dour that I've seen on TV in a long time. The show itself just feels incredibly muted. Now, all of this isn't to say that the show is bad. As I said, the show, the world of the show feels right, and the characters offer just enough to seem compelling, and I can imagine some viewers will actually find themselves drawn into the world created here. But does the show offer a compelling reason for return engagements? I'm tapping out of the ring on this one. Fascinating. I have never been a wrestling fan, although quite by coincidence, I did review a film through the week over on my screen space page called You Cannot Kill David Arquette, which mm. uh, recounts his return to the ring after an embarrassing incident back in 2000, promoting the film Ready to Rumble. So I had wrestling at the forefront of my mind when this show came up, when Heels came up. Um, I'm going to have a look at it. I find maybe I'm getting old and a bit stupid. But maybe the wrestling I mean, no is argument exactly here. what I... <laughs> Yes, I was waiting for you. Um, the, the, uh, there is something about this which appeals, and I must admit and the insight that the David Arquette film provided into the, the passion that the fans and the performers bring to, to wrestling did sort of pique my interest a little bit. But um, I don't know. It's probably well down the list of things I have to watch at the moment. Mm. Simon, there was a second film that you watched this week, and strap yourself in. I want to hear about it. I didn't think we had secrets. Everybody has secrets. It's our house. But backwards. What the hell was he doing? It's called The Night House. In the week's second major film release dealing with memory and loss, we meet the grieving widow Beth, Rebecca Hall, shattered by the recent suicide of her husband, left alone in the lakeside home he built for her. She tries as best she can to keep things together. But then the dreams come, then the bumps in the night, the knocks at the door, the wet footprints on the floor... Against the advice of her friends, Beth starts investigating her husband's past. Photos of strange women on his phone lead her to an uninhabited island across the lake where she sees lights at night. A dream about a house that is the exact inverted design of their home. Beth is deeply embroiled in the unravelling of her husband's secret life until the madness that tormented him becomes her own. So the nighthouse keeps folding in on itself over and over until the mystery of Beth's husband becomes as much of a burden for the audience as it does for her. The narrative is still revealing these layers of mysteries at a point in the film when it should be sort of hurtling towards a thrilling conclusion a thrilling revelation frankly i got a little confused and a bit distracted trying to keep up with which house is which which beth is which and so on which isn't to say i wasn't entertained or at key moments given a good fright but the storytelling becomes a bit cumbersome Hall herself is a fairly icy presence, but that suits the state of grief and fragility in which she finds herself. She's called upon to do some strong solo physical acting that must have been giggly to shoot, but convinces on screen. It's no sixth sense, which is still the high watermark for this sort of supernatural mystery, but it is watchable and well-staged spookery. I have to say, with cinemas closed, uh, when I saw this one was coming out and I was going to miss it in the theatre, I was genuinely disappointed. It sort of seemed like... I, I'm not a big horror viewer generally, but every so often I do get the urge to go and see a haunted house movie like this. Like it sort of seemed like it was ticking quite a few boxes for me and the Rebecca Hallness of it all kind of really drew me in as well. So I'm, and even though that was a bit of a tepid review from you, I still wish I could really get to the cinema and watch this one. It cut a great trailer. And it tries to be that slightly deeper, sort of more intellectual horror film that the recent Jordan Peele stuff was. Um, Elevated horror, I believe is the term. Elevated horror, I like that. Have you not heard um, that phrase before? No, I've not heard that phrase so, before, except that time I got stuck in a lift at Carlingford Court. That was elevator horror. But <laughs> well, they, I, think, I think the term comes from John Krasinski when he was out promoting uh, The Good Place. The Good Place, that's not the name of the film. Uh, what's it called? Quiet, quiet Place. Quiet Place. <laughs> Yeah. When he was doing A Quiet Place Part 1, and he referred to his film as elevated horror. And that's a phrase that other filmmakers who were also playing around in like fancy pants horror films also grabbed onto. And they were trying yeah. to sort of point out the fact that this isn't just like a cheap genre movie that you're going to go and see like a, you know, um, Annabelle creation film or like any of that sort of stuff. Like this is yeah. proper artistically intended horror. This isn't just horror. This is elevated horror. And well, boy, to that, 
Boy, did the horror fans get pissed off when they heard that phrasing. Yeah, I bet they did, and I'm not at all surprised. Most horror is elevated above other types of cinema, so to claim that as your own, John Krasinski, screw you. Um, oh, come on, I love well, Krasinski. This is- if he wants to say something, I'm on board for it. So that's clearly what the Nighthouse is aiming for. This is uh, aiming for more an intellectual take on on the uh, the haunted house genre, um, and it's a good effort. I don't want to be too down on it. Yes, my review was tepid, but um, there's certainly a lot of smarts going on with this film, and that will that will be enough for some. So. Um, the Nighthouse, catch it where you can. It'll, look, to be honest with you, it'll probably be on DVD in about a month's time, so maybe wait till then. Okay, we've gone from lows to lows to lows to lows, so how about we wind <laughs> things out with a chat about Nine Perfect Strangers? You here for the 10-day retreat, Us 2.0? I certainly am. Apparently I'm in need of some fixing. Welcome to Tranquillum House. The people who come here, they come to heal. I don't want to suffer. You're already suffering. No show is an island. We watch shows with expectations going into them. Our opinions and taste is formed by other cultural engagement. Now, Simon, let me explain criticism to you. No, no, no. Okay, okay let's just back out of that. Okay. But for every viewer who's going into Nine Perfect Strangers, they'll be coming to this with some very specific baggage on board. We all watched White Lotus over the last month and a half. Both shows are about entitled rich people visiting a pricey resort to find elements of themselves that they had lost. White Lotus was a holiday, whereas Nine Perfect Strangers is a wellness resort. And that small detail aside, that's so similar that it's difficult not to view Nine Perfect Strangers through a White Lotus lens. The star power in Nine Perfect Strangers is at a higher wattage than White Lotus. You've got Nicole Kidman as Masha, the Russian woman who runs the resort with a slightly questionable accent. And then you've got the resort guests, including Melissa McCarthy, who's the best thing here in the show as a writer who's found her career on a downturn. You've also got an over-the-top Michael Shannon, Regina Hall, Bobby Carnavale, Grace Van Patten, Luke Evans, and Aussie actors Samara Weaving and Asha Ketty. If released without the spectre of White Lotus looming large over this, I think everyone would be far more receptive to the show. Unfortunately, White Lotus felt more self-assured and was far more biting in its commentary of the privilege of wealth versus worker resort staff. Here it seems to be a commentary on the experience of a privileged wellness resort, which may seem relatable to stars with the wealth and access of a cast like this and series writer David E. Kelly, but it's an alien subject matter to many of us. When compared to White Lotus, this show simply isn't as smart, it isn't as fun, it isn't as good. But here's a thing for Aussie viewers who are watching it. The show is set in Northern California somewhere, but you have never seen a show look as obviously filmed in Australia as this show. The show looks and feels exactly like its shooting location in northern New South Wales. It's gorgeous to look at. Every tree surrounding this resort is Australian. Every blade of grass. Well, that's a plus. Do they cut away to Rosella lorikeets occasionally? Or do they have like cook kookaburras in the background? That's what they usually do with Australian shot stuff. But, I mean, that's that's disappointing because that is a quality cast. What was the last thing David E. Kelly did of any note? Because, I mean, I'm thinking all the way back to the, the Ali McBeal and the, the LA Law type thing, aren't I? I mean, look, first of all, I think that maybe needs to update your television references because as far as TV is concerned, David E. Kelly's career has rarely been hotter than it is right now. So, yes, he was a huge... Like, honestly, I would say that a lot of my passion for television comes from watching David E. Kelly projects throughout the 90s. I grew up as a um, tween going into teen years watching shows like Picket Fences. Uh, As I got a bit older, that migrated over to Chicago Hope, which I think is an all-time great series. Uh, Then he did uh, The Practice and Ally McBeal. Ally McBeal I suddenly struggled with, and a recent rewatch of that show has kind of uh, been a real sort of reminder as to why that show, you know, is what it is. Uh, But The Practice, I think, still holds up pretty well as pretty solid drama. Uh, He's been a bit quiet. I guess maybe with some sort of fairly fallow years. But in the last couple of years, we've seen him come back with... So this is obviously a reunion between David E. Kelly and Nicole Kidman in terms of creating the show. But both projects are based on Leanne Moriarty books. And the Leanne Moriarty book for this, I think, was based in Australia. But then they updated the script to be set in California and then filmed it back in Australia, which is weird. Anyway, uh, other things David... Other things David E. Kelly's done recently, because, like, look, just don't think it's big little lies. The last couple of years, he's knocked out, uh, gosh, what was that? There was a Lincoln Lawyer TV show, which is about to launch soon. He did Goliath Mm -hmm. for Amazon, a network series called Big Sky, which I think is running here on Disney+. Plus. 
Big Shot, which is another series for Disney+. Plus. The Undoing, which he did with, again, Nicole Kidman last year with him and uh, her and Hugh Grant. That might have been earlier. Kelly's this year. writing all this. Kelly's writing yeah. all this, or the or show running. He's writing all this. He's writing all this and, and show running. Mister Mercedes, yeah. which was a series that recently ran on SBS on demand. So like yeah, he's been okay. busy. And if you remember back to the Picket Fences Chicago Hope days, he was writing all of those episodes. Like that was twenty two yeah. episodes a season. Yeah, and he was going out with Michelle Pfeiffer, wasn't he? Well, he's married to Michelle Pfeiffer. He is. He still is. Yeah, it's a successful oh, marriage that's continued on. He leads a good life, doesn't he? He does all right. Well, good f- good for you, David E. Kelly. Um, I'm sorry you've made a pretty crappy TV show but by what, all the sounds of again, it. Again, it's not crappy. It's just that uh, White right. Lotus came and did the exact same thing in a much better way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to check it out. I'm a Kidman fan. I've got to have a look at stuff she's done. I want to see what the northern parts of New South Wales look like on screen because I used to go there before we were all shut into our homes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is, uh, this is probably worth a look. But, yeah. Uh, my expectations have dwindled. That was the review segment. Now, Simon, I sprung on you a idea that we're going to do a middle section. And I don't yeah. know how long we're going to talk about this, but I just want to throw a question at you. Sure. We've been shut down. We've been locked out of being able to go to cinemas for seven weeks now. It's hell, Dan. It's hell. Well, okay. So this is my question. I don't know if you've like been doing some deep introspective sort of thought about your relationship with cinema, but have you noticed any changes at all? Like, is it just that you've got a hunger to return back to the cinema or there's a conversation that's been happening about the idea that audiences, and this is more us framework than it is for us. Cause myself and Simon, we've been able to go to the cinema with regularity since June last year, up until the last six, or seven weeks. So mm. Yes, we were watching some lesser films being released in the theatre, but we were still able to go to the movies and see some good things and some not-so-good things and have a relationship with the cinema. But in the US, where cinemas have been closed for much longer, there's been questions about whether audiences want to return to the cinema. Now, I'm sure that that's not even a idea that you would entertain, that you would never return to the cinema. But I've been wondering, like, has your relationship changed with it? You're talking to a man who, for the best part of the last 30 years was averaging at least two trips to the movies a week. Mm. Um, I was seeing stuff in theatrettes. I was seeing stuff in multiplexes. I was um, locking myself in a dark room with strangers was such an integral part of my life that it's unavoidable uh, for me to not sort of notice that films that I would normally be watching on the big screen, I'm now watching on the small screen, films that would have been part of my life a year ago I haven't seen yet. Um and then there's the professional side of things of trying to maintain a gig as a, a film critic and just trying to see as much as you can so you've got something to fill your segments with and, and, your, and your podcast with. Um, in terms of am I ready to return to cinemas and will my cinema-going habits be changed going moving forward? Uh, Sorry, can I, I am... just, can I just ask? I want to hear two things. Like, one, you frame that as are you ready to go back to the cinema? But yeah. also... I want to know whether you're as excited about going back to the cinema in terms of like you've been watching so many things at home on screeners the last couple of weeks at least. Yeah. And these are big release movies like Free Guy last week, for example. Yes. That, like, well, that I'm, was disappointing because I didn't see it on the big screen. No, there yeah. there is still an element for me, and, you, and we've discussed this before, you know I'm a traditionalist in this regard. Mm. There is still an element of wanting to sit nine rows back in my favourite chair and see Free Guy and see Ghostbusters Afterlife and see Top Gun Maverick on the big screen. That's that's I don't see... that. That's such an ingrained part of my DNA. I can't ever imagine a time when that experience for me will be um, made less or become void. Um, so, yes, I am missing those elements. Seeing something like The Night House at home, even something like Reminiscence, which would look great on the big screen, but I don't think would have added to my enjoyment of the film. Um, I'm not missing so much the 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 that experience, but there's still, uh, there's still a big screen element that I have to get to. Yeah. Uh, for listeners of screen watching, if you've got some thoughts on this, feel free to send us an email or even like a voicemail message and we can maybe play it on a podcast. I'm just curious to know sort of where people are feeling about this in terms of Australian viewership. And there's a difference between the way that Simon watches the movie because film criticism is a big part of his professional life. And like Simon will get along to like some screenings and stuff. So for him, it's an investment of time and passion. But for your average person, you're going to work and you're, you know, most people, I guess you're working as a banker 
<laughs> throughout the week. Oh, I was just trying to think of the most mundane job that I can think of. Banker. Uh, you're working as a banker, but then also you've got some free time. So you'll go and see a movie on the weekend or on a Thursday night or whenever you want to get along to see it. You've got to invest not only the time and energy, but also, you know, somewhere between 15 to 25 bucks, if not more, to get along to the movie. So people have different viewpoints that they have when they come to the movie experience. So I'd kind of mm. like to hear from people as to how they're feeling about it. Well, there's, there's no For me, I'm not sure. I feel like I'm sitting somewhere between you, which is that I just want to go back to the movies. My own yep. habit, because I don't get to as many screenings as uh, Simon does. It's usually things that I have to pay for and make some very deliberate decisions that, yes, this is the movie I'm going to go and see. Most Saturday mornings, I usually go and check out a movie and finish up by midday and then go and have a tasty lunch somewhere. That's my Saturday morning ritual. Uh, but like, honestly, I'm not even sure when movies come back. There's going to be somewhere I'm going to be very excited to go and see. There's some that I'm disappointed I can't see on the big screen. But at the same time, I'm also not 100% convinced that I'll be necessarily feeling the need to go back on a weekly basis in the way that I have been. I, like, I feel that internally, I feel there's been a sever and I'm not sure that it's just been the last seven weeks or if it's something that's been building to this right now. And this has just been like a final line in the sand for me. We probably don't want to get too deep into this, but you and I shared a bit of a back and forth this week over an article written by, and you'll have to remind me of the gentleman's name. Uh, so Michael Baloney, who's Bologna. a former editor-in-chief at Variety, yeah. who runs a really interesting newsletter these days called um, yeah. What I Heard Happened. That's not the name of it. Something like that. Sorry, what, what I'm Hearing <laughs> is the name of his newsletter. What I'm Hearing. And it was a really fascinating piece which spoke of just how impossible it is for the studios to strategize any sort of release patterns going forward for their movies based on just the unprecedented sort of state of affairs with COVID, then Delta, then cinemas opening and shutting and all that so, sort of so stuff. Broad, so broadly the um, issues they're facing is that, one, in the US people are hesitant to go back to cinemas. The baloney piece ended up mentioning a stat, which was a report this week that found that only 67% of Americans are comfortable even setting foot into a cinema, which is down from 80% a month ago. Mm. So this is with the rise of Delta in the US. So cinemas are open there, yep. but they've got Delta and people are very concerned about Delta overwhelming the US health system. So there's concerns at the moment that cinema is going to shut down possibly soon and that various measures are being put in place at the moment that may reduce or curtail cinema attendance, like having to wear masks and that kind of gear. So you've got that in the US. And then you've got areas like Australia and throughout Europe where there's a number of territories which just aren't open at the moment. There's places that are dealing with Delta in a really big way, which is really just stunted cinema attendance. So there's a lot of big mm. pressure issues from all sorts of territories globally, which are impacting on US cinema releases. Yeah, and the cinema chain and the distribution sector hasn't seen anything like this ever. And I was, in fact, when I was writing you a response in my email, I said they haven't seen anything like this since World War Two. Well, the fact was cinemas did great business in World War Two. People hidden when sort of kept busy watching movies. Mm. So it's unprecedented in the 120-year history of, of movie going um, for something like this to come along. So it's not unusual that, that we're all, that all, all the elements of the film business are struggling terribly with how to cope with it. Um, there was mention in the article about how the new mode of analysing box office takings has changed. Everyone sort of heaved a huge sigh of relief when Free Guy opened to $30 million dollars the other weekend, um, which is of course dire when compared <laughs> yeah. to uh, what 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 would have what you know what those figures would have meant two years ago, but which was like, whew, that's about as good as it's going to be right now. So um, yeah, it is a, a changing landscape, and how that will impact us all, me as a film watcher and as a film critic, and you as a film goer, um, where we'll be in a year's time, um, it's still totally up yeah. in the air. Totally One of the questions, it. and this is something I've sort of been thinking about, but Baloney did mention in this piece was, and I'd link to it, but it's part of a subscription newsletter. So, um, you know, if people want to track it down, I guess try to find a way, uh, maybe subscribe to it. Uh, but one of the things yeah. he sort of flags is like if we're, and he doesn't really sort of express this directly, but he sort of um, alludes to it, is the idea that if we're looking at free guys, what did it pull in? It was like $28 million, I think. Just over yeah. 28, yeah. So Free Guy's making $28 million, and that's seen as a success in the current sort of pandemic climate. What happens when we get past this pandemic sort of era and movies are only opening to $28 million? So like maybe that becomes mm -hmm. a new ceiling. And if that happens, then what happens to big budget movies? So the thing that he directly talks about is that, yes, Free, Free Guy, which was $150 million to make, 
like a movie like that just isn't possible anymore. So we've talked about the death of the mid-tier movie, which we've always looked at between that 20 million to like 80, 90 million dollar mark. But are we maybe moving into an era where that mid-tier movie is really 20 million to 200 million and you just can't really launch a movie of that size into the theaters anymore and expect a return? So it's an interesting idea. If you can't get to the cinemas, you can watch our YouTube channel. Now, I know that's a beautiful segue, as only I can do, but I want to give a quick plug before we get into the official middle bit. Um, The plug, the the screen-watching YouTube channel is where a lot of our video interviews go. This week, I put up their interviews with the great Barbara Crampton, star of Reanimator. Her new film, Jacob's Wife, is on shutter as we speak. The great character actor legend Courtney Gaines many remember him as Malachi in Children of the Corn he hasn't stopped working for 50 years and tells some great stories in our interview um, and you and I had a chat with the great Jose Puchella, um on his podcast Diary of a Crowded Funded Film and he delved deep into our minds to uh, see what inspires and engages and keeps us moving forward as two of Australia's finest podcasters oh did I say that out loud I guess I did <laughs> plus there's also the archive stuff um you know, the stars of Dive Club, Joe, Joey Pants, Joe Pantoliano, Rennie Harlan, a whole lot of stuff on our YouTube channel. Just what, Google screen watching YouTube and go and check mm. it out. Uh, and if people want to hear the dirty joke that got cut out of that podcast that did with Jose, stop me on the street. <laughs> Boy, didn't that cause an uproar? <laughs> you and your filthy mouth. <laughs> anyway, Simon, that probably is a perfect segue for us to play a little bit of a musical sting and head into our interview this week. Universal Pictures are releasing on digital download a film this week called Come Play. It stars the wonderful Gillian Jacobs, who we know from uh, mostly comedy over the years. She was great in Community, of course. She plays the mother of a young boy who is on the autism spectrum, um, who is seeing monsters coming out of a, a children's book, One Monster in particular called Larry who is a truly nightmarish vision created for the film by the Jim Henson uh, workshop Um, and this is a very scary Bubba Duke-esque kind of horror film it's an adaptation of a short film that the director Jacob Chase made a few years back Um, and with the feature he gets all the scares just right and he spoke with us a couple of weeks ago ahead of the film's release. Mate, thank you so much for joining us on screen watching and congratulations on on a terrific little supernatural thriller. Oh, thank you so much. It's glad glad to be here. Thanks for watching it. You've been living in Larry's world for a long time now. First, the, the 2017 short, which never come together quickly, then expanding it into a feature. After all this time together, what can you tell us about Larry? <laughs> um, Larry it might just be my best friend at this point. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, making the short uh, was sort of this labor of love with some friends on a, you know, shooting over one long night. Um, and, you know, getting to expand it into a feature really let me dive into the character and the world and like expand on mythology, create sort of characters around Larry who would sort of be the most interesting people to, to share the screen with him. And um, ultimately, I, I definitely, uh, you know, all joking aside, I, I owe a lot to Larry because, you know, this, this character has given me the opportunity to make a, you know, an awesome studio movie, which is my first studio film and, and getting to make it with Amblin, which is the company that like made me want to make movies in the first place was a total dream come true. Well, that, that leads me straight into my next question. This is the film of someone who clearly loves horror movies and, and the scene with the newspapers in the empty car park. And I don't want to give anything away, but, but that's inspired stuff. What are the horror works that I guess, continue to inspire you? Yeah, I do love horror uh, of all kinds, like both films and also like live horror theater and haunted houses, um, which I used to run oh. a haunted house for many years. Um, uh, I am inspired a lot by movies like Poltergeist, um, Jaws, uh, The Conjuring, The Ring, uh, Insidious. I love all sorts of horror movies. I have a pretty broad taste and I try to seek it all out and watch everything. Um, and I, you know, just, I, I love movies. And so I just always get inspired and always sort of find little tidbits that I'm like, oh, that's like, what an original way to say that or to, you know, have that scare. And I, I don't know, I just tried to be as original as I could with with the scares and with the characters in, in this film. The uh, mentioning Spielberg there conjures images of, of his great 
sort of mother characters, the, the you know, from Joe Beth Williams and, and you know, the, the, um, uh, from Jaws, uh, what's her name, Lorraine Gary and people like that. And Gillian Jacobs certainly has that, that element as well. Um, what were her strengths, um, both as an actress and what did she bring to the production at, when, when she was cast as Sarah? Yeah, I mean, Gillian is amazing. She's uh, a wonderful sort of classically trained actress that most people know her from like her comedic roles. And I, I always love the idea of taking someone who's known from comedy and like showing kind of everything else they can do because I genuinely believe comedy is the hardest uh, thing to be able to do as an actor. Um, so, you know, it was no... Uh, shock to me that she was more than capable of, of, you know, pulling off this, this role. And she just brought so much to it, so much empathy for the character and for the family. Um, she really created such a bond with Eji, who played Oliver. Um, and she also just was a joy to have on set because she's like a filmmaker herself. So she would like get super jazzed by doing like the complicated wonders I wanted to do or, you know, being in those suspense sequences and stuff. And she was just awesome. I mean, she would hang by the monitor with me when she wasn't in scenes and we'd like just, you know, talk about stuff. And um, I really can't wait to work with her again. Um, I got I got Gillian's name wrong, and I'm glad you said Aji because I would have got that name wrong as well. Aji Robinson, <laughs> he's terrific as as Oliver. Um, I've got to play the devil's advocate here a little bit. There's always some risk attached when conditions like autism are introduced, especially into genre films. What guidelines did you set yourself to ensure the portrayal of someone uh, on the spectrum was respectful, was truthful? Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a definitely big. Um you know, challenge to get it right. And it was really important for me to get it right. I, you know, I didn't want to make the movie if, if we weren't authentic. Um, my wife works with autistic children. Um, she's an early inter interventionist. Um, so over the years, I've gotten to know so many wonderful kids on the spectrum and their families um, and learned a ton about them, grown just such an understanding and a, and a love uh, for the community. Um, so it was long important to me to make a movie about uh, a kid, you know, on the spectrum. Um, and, you know, for the character of Oliver, when I was writing him, you know, I, I used, you know, my wife was a jumping off point, but like I used, you know, dozens of, of different advisors. You know, I worked with kids on the spectrum and adults on the spectrum, speech therapists, families, um, parents, all sorts of people. There was this one young man, uh, Sam Rubin, who was, awesome dude who he's uh, he's got autism um when he was oliver's age he was actually nonverbal, so he became like a kind of surrogate for me of like you know i'd let him read the script and stuff and he'd give me notes um you know and he's quite eloquent uh now in his 20s uh and you know he would tell me what i was doing wrong or doing right uh and i just kept sort of doing that process throughout both writing you know directing the film and in post as well um just surrounding myself with you know, as, as much of the learned experience as I could have. Um, and also hiring people like the, the company Exceptional Minds who does VFX work on our movie and um, they're a team of all people with autism. So, you know, really just trying to, again, surround the movie, surround myself with as much knowledge as I could. You, and you've already mentioned a couple of films that, that um, make up this question. You use modern technology as a key element in Come Play, the, the phones and the tablets are all pathways to Larry's world. Um, you mentioned Poltergeist that used television. You mentioned The Ring, which used the VHS tape. Why is, is new tech in a horror setting so effective as a, as, a, as a tool? Yeah, well, I think you actually used the right word there, which is pathway. You know, it is, you know, I don't think, you know, a movie about technology being evil um, would, I mean, I don't want anything is possible, right? But I didn't see the version of that that, that was scary um, I, because screens are innocuous. To me, um, you know, what the screen became a stand-in for was whatever, you know, the old book or the old amulet or the VHS tape, right? It is, it is the means to communicate with the evil. It is not the evil itself. So, so what I tried to do, you know, in the making of the film was like, Yes, the technology is what's creating this window to Larry, but I tried as much as possible to sort of let the technology fall away and make it more about the primal fear of Larry the monster. Um, that's what we're, we're truly afraid of. It's, it's what we're seeing through the screen. It's not the screen itself. I'm fascinated by the physical design of Larry. What was the brief just to make him nightmarish? Because he's certainly that. 
or was there um, more specific origins for his appearance? What inspired his look? Yeah, so so the original look honestly came from this monster that I had made in one of my haunted houses I used to create. Um, it was this stilts costume that I used to wear and scare people uh, with oh, wow. um, very long arms and legs. Uh, and and that's what I used in the short film because I like had the monster costume I made still in the garage. And I was like, let's get that out. Let's make a short film with some friends. Um, so there was already sort of like a general silhouette I liked, but as the, as the character of Larry evolved and he became this sort of lonely misunderstood monster, my sort of direction to the Jim Henson creature shop who created him um, was, was to make someone who, yes, at first glance is scary, but ultimately it's someone that's quite lonely. And I wanted the, the physical manifestation of him to feel that pained feeling that he feels inside, um, that, that loneliness, that, that sort of uncomfortable feeling you get when you're alone in this world. I wanted that sort of in physical form. Um, and so they really ran with that challenge. And I, I think they made something quite iconic and, and it is uh, both terrifying, but also someone that you can have some empathy for and the way they move, the way their arms sort of stretch, the way they're never quite you know, uh, straight up and down, you know, they're always a little bit uh, uh, crooked. Um, and that, that carried through to the sound design too, you know, same sort of direction to our amazing sound team um, to, you know, use these hollow sounds, things that felt pained um, and arthritic as they were moving. So it could feel painful as you were watching him. Um, you look like you had fun scaring those kids in the scene where, where <laughs> Larry turns up in the kitchen. What was it uh, like directing that group of kids? That certainly harkens back to the the the, the Amblin of the eighties, and um, and those scenes were looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, they were a lot of fun. I mean, you know, we cast some amazing kids who were great, um, and then also, you know, having a practical monster, this nine foot tall puppet, in the scene with them. I mean, that was huge because I could actually you know, I'll never forget the first day they all showed up and I had this monster walking around, you know, and it's all these puppeteers like operating him. So they actually got to look and see how tall he is and see how he moves. Um, so for me, it was creating an environment that was conducive to them just genuinely being kind of terrified without, you know, torturing the kids, of course, you know, it was all in good fun and they were all totally game for the challenge. Um, but, but, you know, it was fun because, you know, in the best versions of horror movies, and you see this when you do test screenings and stuff, as soon as people are scared, they start laughing. Um, and it's just like a natural human response to, uh, to kind of, you know, laugh with yourself to sort of let out this sigh of relief through laughter. Um, and so the kids were just like constantly like screaming and then laughing and just having kind of the time of their lives when we were shooting those scenes. Um, does Larry's loneliness go away or can we expect... Uh... Larry too, somewhere along the line. Um, well, if enough, uh, you know, Aussie audience uh, buys the movie, maybe uh, we'll get uh, the sequel. Um, you know, I, I think the movie definitely stands on its own. I think it's a, a complete journey. But of course, you know, should the opportunity arise, I would love to make another one. You know, there's plenty of other people that, that Larry uh, would be going after. Um, and there's lots more story to tell, I think. And lots of screens out there as well. So, um, mate, you've made a, a terrifically entertaining film. Um, certainly scary, but there's a lot more to it as well. So, um, Jacob Chase, thanks for being on screen watching. And you can see Come Play via digital download from August 18 around Australia. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Simon Foster, as we reach the end of yet another screen watching, we do like to take a look at the week ahead. Now, Simon, we've got some new and returning TV series this week. It is a huge week for returning shows. We've got The Walking Dead that begins its 11th and final season. You've got Wentworth, which starts the run of the final 10 episodes of that series. Oh, good. You've got Archer back for another season. I love Archer. Oh, you're love an Archer fan. Very funny. Haven't missed any. I'm presuming this is probably going to be the first season without Jessica Walters as a presence in the series. So Aww. it'll be interesting to see how they deal with oh. that. Uh, and then you've got American Horror Story, and there's a new Netflix series called Clickbait, which drops midway through the okay. week. Also on Netflix, you've got the anime spin-off from the live-action film The Witcher, and it's a animated film called The Witcher, Nightmare of the Wolf. The show that I'm super keen on is Chapelwaith. Now this stars Adrian Brody, and it's based on a Stephen King story. The show, it's a moody horror, and the logline for it is that Captain Charles Boone relocates his family of three children to his ancestral home in Maine, 
after his wife dies at sea. I probably didn't mention, need to mention that Stephen King was behind it, considering this is a horror set in Maine, but there we go. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> now, the show that I think that is absolutely worthwhile keeping an eye out for is a documentary coming up on Netflix called Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. Now, I wouldn't ordinarily recommend and say that you need to check out a documentary about Bob Ross, but when you see the trailer for this, like, there is... The trailer itself, it's really compelling. The trailer says it can't show you anything because there's a hidden story to be told. And when the subject matter is as tame as Bob Ross, and that's the guy that did the painting show... Oh, the painting with Bob Ross. Of yeah. course, I'm trying to picture, put the name to a name. Okay. Yeah, yep. so when the subject matter is as tame as Bob Ross and the trailer is saying we cannot show you anything in this at all because there's this hidden story you have to wonder what the hell is going on here that is one heck of a hook so it's always the quiet ones isn't it it's always the quiet ones (laughs) look absolutely so maybe it's nothing maybe it's just a really good trailer but if the documentary lives up to the promise of the trailer it's probably something worthwhile checking out before the hype builds and also got a movie that's debuting and streaming this week with netflix's uh, what's called sweet girl and the logline here is a devastated husband vows to bring justice to the people responsible for his wife's death while protecting the only family he has left, his daughter. And who's the lead in this one? There's someone notable. Yeah, Jason Momoa, old Aquaman himself, plays Ray Cooper, who's the uh, the vengeance-seeking action man hero. And the daughter's played by the lovely Isabel Merced, who was um, Dora the Explorer in the movie uh, a couple of years ago. She's um, she's a talent on the rise. Yeah, you referred to him as Aquaman's Jason Momoa. I like to think of him as Baywatch star Jason Momoa. <laughs> yes, you do. Oh, dear. Um, okay. My understanding is that they are still some cinemas running in Australia. And what the heck's running on them? Tell me. Yeah, look, even if you just have to walk in to get your chock top fix, I do that. Um, there are a couple of movies that are playing around town. There's a movie called The Cave. Now, this is a European version um, coming out ahead of, uh, I think, the Ron Howard movie. This is the story of the rescue of the Wild Boar soccer team, the 12 boys and their coach uh, who were caught in the Tum Lung Cave in northern Thailand. Um, this is a very handsomely mounted production um, and certainly captures all the emotion and the thrills and the uh, the feel-good ending. Spoiler alert, they get out um, in the cave. Uh, and also there's the uh, very poorly received biopic of uh, uh, R&B singer Aretha Franklin. It's called Respect. It stars Jennifer Hudson blasting out some of those high notes. Also Mary J. Blige, Forrest Whitaker, Marlon Wayans, and for some reason Mark Maron in there. So um, the reviews, and I haven't seen this film yet, but they're saying it's a very by-the-numbers biopic, which is what I really have to It's a genre that I really struggle with. Even the very best of them are essentially... You know, actors show pieces that just sort of run through the sort of the Wikipedia page of any celebrity's life. So um, I'm disappointed to hear respect is like that. You know, the best biopic I ever saw, Mm. or certainly up there, was Wired, the John Belushi biopic that starred Michael Chiklis. It took a really sort of out there take on his life sort of the 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 actor himself looking at his life from from the afterlife and it was just terrific but these these sort of bullet point biopics like respect um don't do the 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 the, um memory or the 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 celebrity of the stars any any justice yeah i feel that it's actually a legal requirement to refer to him as the commissioner michael chiklis but Okay, I will indeed do that. There is some special event cinema happening around uh, the countryside. Cinefest Oz kicks off in WA. Uh, They celebrate Australian film. It's the 14th annual Cinefest Oz. Um, It it goes from the 25th to the 29th of August. It's various sites on the West Coast. Uh, There is the world premiere of a film called Akoni. It's a refugee drama. I interviewed the director, Jenna Chanel Hayes, through the week, and uh, that vision will be up on our YouTube channel as well it's a beautiful beautiful film that she shot here in australia and in west africa in ghana so it's an extraordinary achievement and at the mercury cinema in adelaide that old michael kane oh gee that was a terrible let me work into that a bit better it was a michael kane still not any good um <laughs> classic get carter it was directed by mike hodges it's the british tough guy classic next tuesday the 24th at 7 p.m you can see get carter michael kane can you do a michael kane um, i Oh, look, I mean, how could I possibly even attempt to try to get it to the level that you've brought to the podcast this morning? 
Clearly you'll be cutting all of that out, so I won't even bother with it. You could go the older Michael Caine, who talks a bit like that. Remember the great scene with um, uh, Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan in one of those road films where they, they do like a Michael Caine off and and uh, do compare their impersonations of Michael Caine? It's not as good as mine, but it's still very funny. Uh, that was, of course, in the film The Trip. Yes, it was The Trip. That's right. Wonderful film. I like to think of it more as the TV series The Trip, but that's just me. <laughs> This week in history, there's an awful lot going on. Between the dates of August 21 and August 26 in history, August 22, 1986, Stand By Me, based on, there's that man again, Stephen King, his body, his novella, what was it called? I just gave it away. It was called The Body, wasn't it? Do you remember that? Uh, Well, I've never read it, nor have I seen the movie. (gasps) I know. Dan Barrett. In my estimation, thou hast plummeted. Um, directed by Rob Reiner, starred Will Wheaton, The Late River Phoenix. That was released on August 22, 1986. Here's one for you. Go right ahead. Okay, August 25th, 1979. Heart to Heart, starring RJ himself, Robert Wagner, and Stephanie Powers. It premiered on the ABC network in the US. Heart to Heart, I've never seen it. Oh my God. But, what sort of a podcast are we running here? But <laughs> I have seen the recreation of the Heart to Heart opening intro as performed for the Adult Swim um, TV event that they're running a couple of years in a row um, with Adam Scott uh, recreating some classic opening series, opening moments from TV shows. And instantly your credibility is reestablished. Thank you very much. August 26, 1955, the first colour telecast of a tennis match. It was on NBC. It was a Davis Cup challenge in which Australian Ken Rosewall beat American Vic Seychelles 63108 One for the tennis fans out there. Never seen it. Right. Here's some birthdays. August 22nd, 1973, Kristen Wiig was born in... How the heck yeah. do you pronounce this? Uh, <laughs> and that's what happens when you don't read through the run sheet. I don't know how to pronounce that, and I wrote it. Canandwager? Yeah, maybe. Maybe? New York? I don't know. It, it's one of those York- upstate New York areas that's yeah. unpronounceable. Mesopequa and places mm. like that. Indeed. Hey, and Shelley here's Long, one for you. cheers star, and also yes, star yeah. of... Troop Beverly Hills. Yeah, I was thinking about that one, or maybe the Money Pit. Uh, born August 23rd, 1949 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The beautiful Marley Matlin. Currently a big deal because of the film Coda on Apple Plus TV. She was born August 24th, 1965. She won her Oscar for Children of a Lesser God. And I came to know her best from her role in the David E. Kelly series Picket Fences. where she played the coming around. <laughs> well, she played the Dancing Bandits, whose name was... I'm going to say Laurie... Something or other. Gosh, I can't believe yes. I've forgotten the surname. Screen watching the podcast where old men try to remember things from a long time ago. <laughs> uh, August 25, been a long time ago. It was only counting fingers 28 yeah. years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whew. August 25, 1987. Blake Lively was born in Los Angeles, California. Classic California girl and a very talented actress, too. Yeah, and there's star, Melissa Murphy again. Star of one of the greatest comic book movie adaptations, Green Lantern. Yes, Green Lantern was fun. She was good in that shark. No, it was terrible. It's one of the worst movies ever made, Simon Foster. How dare you? <laughs> You've lost all credibility. Hey, August 26, 1970, Melissa McCarthy, star of the aforementioned Nine Perfect Strangers. She was born in Plainfield, Illinois. And that's another week for screen watching. Uh, next week is a very busy week. We have got Gracie Otto's documentary, Under the Volcano. This tells the story of the musicians who went all the way to Montserrat to record some of the great albums of the 80s. And Leo Caraxes, I think that's how you say it, Khan's opening film, Annette, with Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Just some of the things we'll be talking about next week. Indeed. Folks, thank you very much for listening to screen watching. My name is Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter, Always Be Watching, at alwaysbewatching.com. It covers the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. I've also got on Fridays the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launch that very week. Also, and I'm going off script here from our notes at the end of the podcast, I'm going to sure. plug my other podcast. You can check that out. It's called the Oz Media Reports, and that's AUS for Australia. And I'll look at the big stories that are happening within Australian media. This week, I had a chat with Clive Dickens, who's the... Uh, we'll call them like the head of product, I guess, at Optus TV. They've just launched a new platform where you can consolidate all of your streaming video and other digital services into one place called Subhub. So if you're an Optus customer, you can control all of that. 
And if you put a few and take care of your billing through Optus, it gives you some discounts as well. So I have a chat with him about that. And I also talked to 13-year-old um, news director, Wonderkin, Leo Puglisi, who runs Channel 6 News. Uh, like, he's incredible. People need to listen to that interview. And then on the podcast this coming week, I've got Tim Burrows, formerly of Mumbrella, and we talk about his new book, which is called Media Unmade. And we discuss broadly the future of the Australian media industry. Where do we find this new podcast? You are a hardworking man. How can we get how can we get a listen to it? Uh, basically, go to the exact same place you listen to this podcast right now and just do a search for the Oz Media Report. And that's AUS Media, Media Report. Report with a T on the end. Good job. I used to work with Tim Burrows, but um, good guy, nice guy. Really? Um, I'm Simon Foster. You can uh, see or read me over on the Twitter at SimonRFoster1. Uh, my words are on screen space, screen-space.net. Do go to the Screen Watching Facebook page. I'm always uploading our content plus other content from around the world. And as I uh, aforementioned, the Screen Watching YouTube channel. There's uncut interviews. I've started loading some trailers up there um, and lots of good stuff to, to check out this week. Fantastic. That brings us to the end of yet another screen watching. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, but, you know, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you're not actually following this in your favorite podcast app, find the follow button, hit the button, load it up, and the podcast will keep coming into your ear holes each and every week. But Simon, we're going to get out of here. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back next week talking more movies and TV shows, hopefully with a bit more enthusiasm. <laughs> yes, with a, without our cranky critic pants on. So uh, good talking to you, Dan. Bye-bye. <laughs>